The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Bell. Did you know that every day around New Zealand, more than $2 million of theft occurs that no one even bothers to report? Petrol station drive-offs, little thefts at supermarkets, things under $1,000 generally don't even get reported to the police, and if they are, the police often can't do much about them. Well, a few years ago, a lawyer and his co-founders saw this issue and thought there must be a better way. Well, a few years ago, a lawyer and his co-founders saw this issue and thought there must be a better way. They set up a company that became Aura helping to link evidence of shoplifting or small-scale crime between the retailer and the police. It's helped lead to some pretty amazing stats. 55% fewer drive-offs at the petrol station Z, and hundreds of recidivist shoplifters brought to justice. The product works by making it easy to report crime, connect the dots on organised retail crime, and even helps prevent crimes by integrating with licence plate recognition. It's a company that's attracted top-class investment and top-class customers, with most of our major retailers here and more and more in Australia and across the world using the service. To talk the journey, the decision to throw it all in as a successful lawyer and chase criminals, and the fact that so much crime would just go unreported, or a co-CEO, Phil Thompson, joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Ivan. Good to be here. Hey, so... um. Tell me first up, you know, you were, you were um, doing law. How did you come across this problem? Yes, yeah, so we saw an article in the paper that set out that it was $2 million every day uh, across the country, and we didn't believe it. So uh, a group of friends got together and, and set out and spoke to a whole lot of retailers, and we saw the problem financially was massive, but what was really interesting were all the other problems associated with it. So uh, it was really hard to report crime Um and off the back of that, people weren't reporting crime at all. Uh, if they did report crime, it was hard to do much about it. Uh, the way that they were recording it was on paper, sometimes fax or a dumb database, and they weren't getting any outcomes. So we asked ourselves, well, how do you use technology and why isn't anyone using technology to try and bridge the gap um, between retailers and police and make it easy to start reporting, solving and preventing more crime? 
and this idea that there is all this, um, or, or there was, there's probably less now, but all this unreported crime. I mean, are there a whole lot of people who just basically are making a living by stealing just just under the radar that they'll get caught on? Like, it mustn't be kind of, um, well, I wonder, is it is it thousands of people doing a little thing or is it a small crew of people doing a lot? Yeah, what we've found over the last couple of years, and now we've got data on it, I think that was the biggest thing, is that there was actually no data across the retailers to prove it. A lot of people had gut feel and gut instinct for what was going on. But now we could look at it and say, for instance, last year, I think it was about 11% of the offenders were causing more than 50% of the value being taken. So when you look at that practically and say, as a, as a police, as retailers, as a community, rather than worrying about 10,000 incidents, if you worry about your top 10 people in the community, that's going to actually have a dramatic impact, uh, not just on retail crime, but they're also linked into much more serious stuff as well. So uh, it was fascinating on, on the journey to start seeing how organised it actually was. And it was this sort of group of people uh, often working together, uh, going across the city, targeting particular products. Uh, it, it sort of it blew our mind just how sophisticated uh, and organised it, it really was. And so on the journey to get there, so how, how did you start out with you and your co-founders? Because you started um, with with small retail, is that right, before moving to the big stuff? Yeah, so a mutual friend brought us together and, and we all had different skill sets that we could play. And so there's five uh, co-founders originally and there's still three in the business. But uh, I, I was brought on from a legal point of view to look at things around privacy and, and also how to set up a company in the first place. Uh, we also had some management consultants and they were out talking to uh, particular retailers. Uh, and then we also had on the tech side, we had data specialists uh, and also a developer from zero as well. So uh, we had a really good combination of, of skills to start with. Um, and I think for for us, it, it was we had to start at the very beginning. We did test it on some small retailers uh, in a local community. Uh, what we found is that they they weren't actually having the same amount of crime as the major retailers were because uh, of the particular goods being targeted uh, and just and just the sheer size of of uh, traffic and volume going through those larger stores. So we pretty quickly switched and said the biggest impact is going to happen if we target enterprise retailers, uh, and that will also flow on effects to small stores as well as, as we go on. And in terms of getting those relationships going. Um, you know, a bunch of friends with an idea to kind of um, cut down retail crime. How do you go from that to walking into the police who you've worked with really closely from the get-go and get them to go, hey, we're going to give you a whole lot more work to do, <laughs> and and then walk into the really big um, supermarkets and the really big, uh, uh, you know, big barn retailers in the country and get them to go, hey, we want to um, we want to work with you. I think that's the beauty of starting in, in New Zealand is is that we are a small enough com- country that I don't know you can ring up one of the largest retailers in the in the country and you don't get put off by uh, the receptionist or by uh, an EA or a PA. You grab up and you say, "Oh, can I speak to Bruce, please?" And they put you straight through. <laughs> and it was actually fascinating that we could get there, and suddenly we're we're sitting in a meeting with um, you know the national loss prevention manager for the whole country. Uh, and we, we told him our idea, and he was good enough to say, sounds interesting, well, why don't we just give it a go? Um, and on the police side, uh, we had really really mixed emotions, I think. Um, some some thought that crime was something that the police dealt with as their job, and, and they should be doing it, and no one else. And uh, I think over the last four, four or five years, we've seen a really real change from New Zealand police, and also police around the world, around 
being more open to partnerships um, and understanding and, and and knowing that crime as a community problem needs everyone's input onto it. Um, so we did have, we, did, we had some senior police say to us, no thanks, we don't need you, we already know what's going on. Uh, and then we had some local police say to us, this is really interesting, how do we how do we become a part of this? Um, so we started from the ground up with police and um, got some wins under our belt and then went back to national headquarters and said, this is what we're actually achieving. Uh, we've got really good support from retailers and from local police. How do we keep proving out this concept and how do we work with you to show that New Zealand can be world leading around dealing with retail crime and crime in our communities? Yeah, that's so cool. And it's something that we hear about a bit that, um, you know, institutions here are um, much easier to kind of get started with. And so by the time you go overseas, you go, oh, well, we're working with the national police and the biggest uh, supermarket or biggest um, retailers. And people are like, oh, well, you must be incredibly legitimate then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I think that's the cool thing. We, we do have one national police force. You know, Australia's got seven or eight, and the US is 18,000. So it's it's a big change. But even when you put New Zealand police uh, and compare it against the US police forces, uh, they, they'd be within the top 10 largest um, and even top five because there are 10,000 officers across the country. Um, so we, even when we go into new markets, we've got... Um, We've got a good understanding of how to deal with a large police service like New Zealand Police. And also they are um, world leading in, in around use of mobile technology and around how they are implementing uh, that sort of new tech uh, to help solve and fight crime. What does it actually do? So how does how does the system actually work? And I guess um, you know the first bit of that would be what was it that you sold in and what has it become? Yeah, so we say that uh, Aura is a retail crime intelligence platform now and it helps retailers report, solve and prevent crime as well as collaborate with police. And what we first sold in was just this aspect of why is it so difficult to report a crime? Um, and if you look at the major retailers across the country, a lot of them were using paper. Um, the process to report a crime, everyone just thinks you ring the police. But that's one aspect of it. And because it's often a historical incident now, someone's run off, uh, they would have to call the crime reporting line, which is not emergency. And it might take them um, 20 minutes, half an hour to relay all the information that they've got. They've also got to provide that same information to their head office for them to look at and to investigate. Uh, and then they're often uh, emailing or talking to the stores in the area. So it's only got three or four processes, all using the same information. So we just said, well, it's pretty simple we just made that one process but let all the right people know that information and the way that they want to ingest it uh, and that's what we, we we sold on is that rather than spending 60 minutes reporting one incident take two or three minutes uh, and in doing so we started to get four or five times as much data as what they previously had uh, and in one instance uh, a retailer used to send one person around to stores in the area once every six weeks to look at photos and and that person would say oh I saw that person about four weeks ago at another store and another photo, so they must be related. Um, whereas now they can get that instantly and they can go, well, we've got a problem uh, with, with, with a person, a vehicle, or a product that's being targeted, uh, and they can do something about it much faster. And so part of that equation is putting the, the reports of incidents, the data of the offences, uh, out to everyone straight away. And part of it's enriching the data as well, isn't there? And so there's two elements to that with, um, as you mentioned, the photos there. So I guess with every store, people have CCTV. So if someone has stolen something, you can then use the photo of the, 
the perpetrator uh, or the alleged <laughs> perpetrator? And then also, can that be linked to um, the cars as well? Yeah, it's all about capturing data in a structured way to do more with it. And I think you're seeing that uh, across all industries with a lot of software these days. And um, it is, so what we found is that uh, often people were committing these incidents in small groups and they were using vehicles. So um, instantly you start linking those things together. And, and now, for instance, uh, if that a vehicle turns back up at a site that's got license plate recognition technology running, um, we integrate with that. So rather than saying ABC123 has entered your car park, which is what that technology is meant to do, we can enrich it with that intelligence and say ABC123 has arrived, uh, Simon Pound's been driving that car, uh, he steals bacon, uh, he works with, with Phil, uh, and it was the last time he carried a weapon, so be careful. Um, and so with that, you're actually keeping uh, staff and customers a lot safer but also putting a lot more, I suppose, policy around privacy, data integrity, and, and and making it easier for people to stop crime before it happens rather than reacting to it. And so that's just giving people information that someone's arrived. So, you know, in, in a case that it might have been last time, maybe their teenage no-good rep scallion had borrowed the car and stolen some hair gel, and this time the same car turns up and it's the mum. <laughs> They're not going to be hit with like a, a, a flying squad, are they? It's just kind of like forewarned as forearmed so they can be aware of that. Definitely. And, and what we've really been promoting and, and what retailers want to do as well is it's not about necessarily kicking someone out or accusing them. It's actually about providing better customer service. So you walk <laughs> in and I say, hi, Simon, here's a basket. I'm here to help you shop today. That's not confronting you and, and claiming or accusing of anything. But in fact, I mean, studies have shown that by saying hello to someone, and you often see that stores these days will have greeters that will say hello when you walk in, you say, oh, it's, it's great customer service. Uh, research shows that that reduces the likelihood of stealing by about 80%, 80. So it's, it's actually a massive, um, because you're not, you're no longer anonymous, uh, and especially the organized groups, they don't want to be caught because there's so much opportunity for them. They'd rather walk out and go somewhere else if they know that they've, they've been identified. Yeah, if they know that a place is pretty switched on and has greeters and, and is, is paying attention to all of that yeah, stuff. Exactly. And, and and you came into the group because of the privacy things. Um, what, what uh, yeah, how, how does that go? Like, do people hear about it and go, it feels like an overreach? Or do people go, well, I guess if people are going into a private place that has cameras and stealing stuff, <laughs> maybe maybe that's something that they can, um, they can lose a little bit of privacy? <laughs> You definitely get a, a mixed reaction when they first hear about it. Um, for us, we we know that privacy is critical to our business and we wanted to uh, ensure that we're sharing information in a safe and secure way. So before we even wrote any code, I mean, that was what I first got involved with. Um, we, were the, you know, we were talking to the Privacy, privacy Commission. Uh, we we're talking to privacy experts uh, and understanding um, how we could do this in the right way, um, both leg legally but also morally as well. And for us, we've actually found that we're providing better privacy policies and processes around it than what's previously been in place. So if you look at, again, that old process, you know, retailers would put up pictures of people uh, on the wall of shame, for instance. Uh, they would share around um, those photos and emails and text messages. Uh, there was no consideration for privacy. Um, so what we did, we actually brought in a whole lot of security around you know, how information should be used, uh, how it can be shared, who should see it. Uh, so we've we've 
really wrapped a layer of privacy and we've built it into the into the platform as well to make sure that um, both us but also our customers are adhering to that and that for the rest of the country you know they know that the information is only being used for uh, crime prevention um, so privacy is a really a really gray area in the sense of it's not necessarily a list of things you can and can't do but it's all around how do you do things in the right way and how do you make sure people know why information is being used so you see things like you know Facebook and Google they've just got these terms of use and privacy policies that go forever saying whatever they want about what they're going to do with your information everyone just clicks okay whatever yeah yeah, yeah. Um, the, the most the most agreed and least read thing ever exactly I mean there's even I think in, in the Apple iTunes um, terms of use that talks around how you can't use iTunes for um, building nuclear weapons so and it's the things that no one ever read about but um, but for I us I can't believe I'm in breach of my condition <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so so for us it's actually about being really open and transparent around how we use uh, information and make sure we use it in the right way so you know we we're not we're not selling any information to third parties all it's being used for is actually to investigate solve and prevent crime and in terms of that prevention piece, and Facebook's an interesting one you mentioned there, as everyone's very comfortable with things like facial recognition on Facebook, like it, it recognises you, your um, your Apple iPhoto has folders of facially recognised um, uh, group, groups of photos of people. Is that something, you've got licence plate recognition for the car park, but is that part of your service in the store? It's a, it's a natural progression that, um, you know, like you said, there are there is this technology coming into the market uh, across a whole lot of different areas. And it is being um, looked into by retailers and as things like price point um, come down and and the community get more um, okay with it all, I think that will definitely come in. And so for us, I suppose, we're going to be looking at doing the same thing we've done with information, with license plate recognition. It's again, how do you make sure that that facial recognition, if it is being used, is used in the right way uh, and that there is a process around it because as it currently stands, if someone is using facial recognition technology, they probably aren't thinking around how they can use it in the right way. Uh, how's information getting onto that system? How's it being removed from it? Uh, how do they use that? Uh, so for us, uh, as part of what we do, we'll be looking at that and going, well, how do you wrap around that privacy element and to make sure that it's being used for the right reasons? Yeah, and, and is that an area of emergent law? Because you look at these horror stories of the, the Chinese social credit system and stuff and you think, oh boy, there are endpoints that most people wouldn't like with that, but then also probably there's um, beginning points that people uh, are comfortable with. Yeah, it's finding that um, the right middle ground, I suppose, between innovation and privacy. Um, and I think... Uh, there's really interesting articles coming out about that. And so somewhere like China, they've gone for the innovation angle. And if you think about it as a seesaw, massive innovation don't care about privacy that much. Um, in Europe, they've gone the opposite way. They really care about privacy and GDPR, uh, which can stifle innovation. Um, Australia, the US, they're probably more of a bit more level. Uh, for us, we go, well, how do you actually snap that seesaw and go, why can't you get innovation and privacy together? So how do you make sure that it's all being used in the right way. And so that's what we're looking at doing is, is making it, it technology safe uh, and the public can trust it and say, well, actually, it is being used for the right reasons. We're, we're helping to stop crime uh, and that we shouldn't have any reservations because we do have it on our iPhones. You know, we are seeing it across uh, every other social media that we use. It's all using this technology. 
And it is in private spaces as well, isn't it? This is the real kind of different point. And so I imagine the people you're talking to around the world, the big box, big chain retailers, who have a lot of private space, um, you know, is it is it a difficult conversation to start? Um, you know, how do you go and um, talk to these big, big new companies? And how have you gone with expanding it around the world? Because it must be a fantastic kind of value proposition to them. We'll help cut down your loss. Hmm. Yeah, so we don't do any of the license plate or facial recognition right. technology ourselves, but yep. we integrate with it and, and do that um, platform offering on top of it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things that people want to get right because it, it is a massive risk if you get it wrong. I mean, and you've seen that um, in media you know, over the years is, is when these companies do get it wrong, um, they are mm-hmm. taken to task for it, and, and often rightly so. So um, yeah, but, but for them it's exciting because the only thing that they've really done over the last 30 years to innovate in this area and they haven't really innovated but it's often putting in more security cameras or putting on more security guards uh so so when we come along and say well that's fine you're doing that but how do you really optimize and 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 get the roi on those investments you're making uh but also how do you actually start stopping crime because nothing you've been doing over the last 30 years is working it's going up and up and up um you know, uh, these companies, and, and this is all public public information, but you look at a company like Walmart in the US, they lose $3 billion a year to customer theft, you know. Companies in Australia are losing hundreds of millions of dollars every, every year, and that's all bottom line profit for them. Mm-hmm. But that also means that someone's paying for it, it's often us as, as the consumer, the prices are more expensive, you know. We're paying for those security cameras and those security guards in, in those stores. So... Um, when you start reducing crime, you are getting those impacts as a consumer and as a community. But also those, those people involved in crime are actually, at that low level, are part of a much bigger organisation and it goes up and more and more serious. And what we start seeing is that those vehicles and those people are also doing things like uh, aggravated robberies and kidnappings uh, and sometimes even murder. So how and how can you use that information at that low level to get outcomes and to stop that more serious crime, which is what we're seeing now? What kind of feedback do you get from the retailers when you roll the system out and things start working? Like, is that, um, yeah, what, what, what are some of the success stories that, that, that you like from it, the work? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of, I suppose, <laughs> anecdotal, I'll call them funny stories because it's sort of, you, you would never think about it or believe it until you start hearing these things. And uh, you see, you can see these uh, videos of people putting legs of land down their pants and running out the stores and pushing trolleys out. Uh, but there's also sort of the much uh, more organised nature of things. And, and one thing early on we saw actually um, was uh, we'll take we'll take two different breakfast foods for you. So uh, we saw a spike in bacon theft. And so we, uh, in, in a particular area in, in New Zealand, and we said to the police, here's a trend that we're seeing. Is this interesting? And they come back and say, wow, we've been doing drug raids on houses and we've not been finding any money, but we've been finding chest freezers full of streaky bacon. <laughs> and they connected those things together and go, they're no longer trading money for drugs, marijuana. They're trading a kilogram of streaky bacon for a tinny. <laughs> uh, and if we want to take this to court, part of, part of proving the supply of, of drugs is that cash element, is that having money. And it's an easy way to prove it. Is they've got thousands of dollars on site. They've got bacon there, and they're saying, "Well, we're just going to use it for a cook-up next weekend." You can't do anything about it. So uh, that was a one, you know, run a really interesting story where there was just this massive spike in bacon theft, and even 
the year after we saw something like um, there's 100 kilograms of bacon was stolen from somewhere in Nelson. Everyone else had a bit of a laugh about it. But when you actually understand that that's being then traded for much more serious things, it starts getting quite concerning of where's it actually going. Uh, and the other breakfast food is is honey. And um, and again, we saw a group of people uh, stealing manuka honey and we could um, quickly put it together because they're using the same vehicles and they're targeting similar products. Uh, the police ended up um, finding six different people. They're all selling it to the same person. Um, so they started following this, this down, down the track and... Uh, that person was mixing this manuka honey with really low-grade honey, repackaging it as higher-grade manuka honey, and then exporting it to China, Saudi Arabia, and Poland, and ended up being uh, arrested and charged for $100,000 worth of receiving stolen goods, uh, and then also export and document fraud. Um, but when you look at that, again, on the wider context of what's that doing for the New Zealand brand, New Zealand Inc., is you've got fake... Banuka honey from New Zealand being sold in these other markets overseas and that just sort of I suppose degrades that brand around New Zealand and our honey so yeah. again those, those flow on effects that you don't really think about until you start seeing that yeah and, and there must be a lot of sensitivities in it as well because I'll bet that the big retailers don't like to know people to know that um, small scale theft it hadn't been going reported before a system like this was here I remember I did a bit of work with a um a hair gel manufacturer and at one stage they had the dubious honor of being the most stolen item from one of our big retailers and i was like well that's great let's put that as the lead campaign you know like most stolen thing at the x and um they were like oh no we couldn't possibly because they <laughs> they, they hate that to be known yeah and, and to be really clear i mean it's not that people didn't want to report it but it just took so long and there weren't many outcomes um from it because uh Again, often that they, if they ran from a report or something, they'd say that someone ran out of the store 15 minutes ago. They were six foot. Uh, they were wearing a black jumper, and you know, and it was hard for them to uh, even provide images or video footage of that. As a police officer, what are you going to do when you got a 50 dollar incident, or you're trying to solve a kidnapping case? Um, and as a community, what would you rather them them doing? Um, versus now, we can actually say to them again, going back to the example of. Um, here are your top 10 people in your area right now, which will have a bigger impact. And what we're seeing is that the police and retailers are working really well together uh, and building those cases together to make that uh, that happen. And along the way, with this pretty strong and clear value prop and big customers from the beginning, um, you've attracted amazing investment, You know, very top tier stuff from the get-go. Um, t- tell me about how you went about that, because from the very start, um, People like universities and Westpac and um, yeah, top top tier funds were, were were getting involved. Yeah, it was, uh, I suppose we've been on an interesting funding journey. We we spent the first year bootstrapping. So when we got our first customer pilot, um, Tom and I left our jobs full time, and we went into this and didn't pay ourselves at all, but knew that hopefully uh, long term it would be successful. Uh, and once that pilot did prove successful, we knew we had to then start building a team around us and, and start paying ourselves a survival salary so we could keep doing this. Um, so we started with family and friends um, and a little bit of uh, VC money and NZVIF came on board as well, um, which got us um, 12 months of runway um, into it very, very lean, but got us that next proof point of going, we've now rolled out with a couple of major retailers in New Zealand. 
Uh, and then we knew that we didn't just want to do another round of money. We actually wanted more advice and experience to help us because we were first-time founders. Uh, we knew that it was going to be a long journey ahead. Uh, so we started, we actually wrote down a list of who would your ideal investors be and, and how could they help us. Uh, and at the top of the list from New Zealand was Sam Morgan from Trade Me and um, Sir Stephen Tyndall with K1W1 because of their retail experience as well. Uh, and and I suppose I always say everything happens for a reason. Uh, you know, fortuitously, we came across uh, someone who said that um, they also had investment from, from Sam and would you like um, to speak to him? And then they said, but you only get one shot with this. And we said, well, actually, we're not ready yet. We'll come back to you when we're ready. Uh, so we went back a few months later and said, I think we're ready for this now. And, and sort of walked Sam through what we're doing and he really really enjoyed what we're doing. So he came on board, um, similar thing with, with K1W1 as well. Um, and that was really cool to, to get that side. But we also wanted to look further abroad and, and we'd seen an article around Westpac raising money for a new venture fund. Uh, and and reached out via LinkedIn to one of the managing partners there uh, and did the whole, hey, I'm actually going to be in Sydney next week. Um, be great if you'd half an hour spare. Uh, they came back and said, yeah, we do. So I quickly then booked flights to go to Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I actually only recently heard from the other side how, how it all went as well. But uh, we turned up there, walked into the room uh, and, and Danny Gilling and started going through what they look for in companies. I'm sitting there going, those three things aren't aren't us. You know, we weren't we weren't fintech. We weren't um, repeat founders. We weren't doing a fast follow, which was one of their, their first three things they're looking for. So I was suddenly going, why are we here? You know, and then Tom Tom bless me just launches into what we do uh, and what impacts we're having, uh, and sort of blew them away with with how it could help the community. Um, so we're, we're very lucky that happened. And hearing from from Danny quite recently around his side of things. He had taken the the meeting on a whim um, the morning of. He was like, "How do I get out of this meeting? How can I cancel it?" Uh, then re- realized that we'd flown in from New Zealand to see him, uh, and then tried to still play hardball. But once he heard what we we're doing, he said, "Actually, this is pretty cool. Like, how can you not be involved in that?" And and his his mantra is always not, "How can this work?" He sort of says, "You know, what if? So what if this works? What is the impact? And and it can be massive. And you know, having the backing of Westpac is is awesome for us as well because." Uh, it's all about uh, working with, with enterprise retailers. It's all about that trust and credibility and being able to say, you know, we're, we're backed by you know, a, a big Australian bank. Uh, we've got the, these advisors on board um, and we're working with these other major retailers means that we can jump through a few more hoops with them. Yeah. And yeah, like like you say with Sir Stephen Tindall, uh, you know, a person synonymous with uh, with big retail uh, being an, an interested in the product. How so? Where where are you now? So um, you, you've you've got most of the the big retailers in New Zealand on board. How's Australia and the rest of the world going? Good. Yeah, we spent the last twelve months really pushing into Australia, and um, we signed um, a couple of of major retailers there recently, uh, and put our team on a first team on the ground. So we now have a Melbourne office open as of last month, uh, and have also started to look further afield. So the US for us is is in a really interesting market because. Uh, I suppose the more complex the market, the more um, the more interesting it is, and the, the probably the better our platform actually works because you've got so much data and you've got so many disparate relationships between different retailers with the police and everyone else. And like I said, eighteen thousand police um, agencies uh, it becomes really difficult to deal with with how they actually communicate and collaborate. So. Uh, 
we dealing with the enterprise, it, it does take a while to get up and running. And also, I suppose we build uh, a network effect. So um, to get that started, you've got to find the right people um, to do that. So we've we've already started that journey, um, which we know will take a little bit while. But uh, yeah, I suppose early next year we're looking at um, putting boots on the ground in the US to, to do the same thing. But yeah, wow. yeah it's it's the, it's the the problem's the same the world over. So and there's no one um, attacking it the way that we are. Yeah, so, so I, was, I was about to ask: Are there other people trying to be the glue between all of these things? Uh, there's not. I mean, there's there's lots of different um, companies doing elements, I suppose. But um, the way that we're approaching it, and with that network effect, uh, no one really is. So that's why for us, it's important to move quickly now. Mm. Uh, we've proven it out. We're seeing really good ROI here in Australia. So um, you know, so, so the results that we're seeing in New Zealand, if you apply that to these American companies, you're talking about them saving two, three, four hundred million dollars a year. Yeah, and if in New Zealand people were able to exploit the fact the lack of um, communication within a geographic area of a few kilometers, imagine what you'd do with um, city with, with with state boundaries and different city uh, law enforcement and and that that lack of coordination. Exactly, and and even I suppose the way that a lot of these major US retailers are are tackling it is that they're putting more human resource into it. So you know, a few of those major retailers, they've just got a room full of, I think it's about 100 FBI investigators. They sit there looking through Excel spreadsheets of data and trying to make these connections. Whereas, again, how do you use technology to automate that, to make it more efficient, uh, to get better outcomes? It doesn't take a year to build a case. It takes two weeks. And so with this growth in these new markets and new offices opening and the like, um, how do you, you know, how do you maintain um, the company culture and the things that because because that's been a real focus for you, hasn't it, at Aura, um, building that culture and it started from kind of people who were close and, and yeah, how do you maintain that? Yeah, we we recognise that um, you know a culture is going to be created regardless. Um, so how can you be really deliberate about it? How do you design the culture that you want and then foster that to grow and. And that not only starts with the people that you've got, but also who you hire and who you bring in. And um, so for us, it was very deliberate around what we wanted to do. Um, you know, and we came up with um, some guiding principles. So, and we um, linked them to superheroes to sort of go with the the crime fighter theme. Um, but uh, one, it actually made them memorable. But two, we use them every day. Uh, I think that's the difference. And uh, I always give the example of. Uh, Back at the law firm, one day they came up with values. Uh, and the way that they shared it with everyone was by putting it on an A4 piece of paper next to the photocopier. Here are our three new values. That was all the communication there was. Uh, and one that always got to me was that number three was people first. <laughs> and so I said to them, why wasn't that not number one? You know, and there was, no, there was no good answer for that. And there's no way of actually using those generic values um so we come up with ones that were really uh, close to us but also that we could use so um uh, one example is we always say uh, have strong opinions loosely held so how can you um regardless of what your role is in the company or your experience how can you challenge anyone how can you have that dissenting point of view in a meeting uh and not feel like um you know you're not you're not being judged or that you can't speak up um so uh, that's just transitioned into if someone does want to share their opinion, they'll start a sentence by saying, "My strong opinion, loosely held, is," and that's just raises a little flag to everyone to say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something different here," um, but the reason I'm doing it is for the good of the company, and, and how do we, how do we discuss this in the, in the right way? So, 
um, we've built out these guiding principles that we we use and um, everyone absolutely loves, mm-hmm. um, and that's just sort of how we how we've designed that part of the culture. Yeah, um, I, and I, yeah. I love that value as well, which is something that quite a few great companies. It's a it's a um, principle kind of thought of uh, Andres and Horowitz, and uh, you know that especially when you've got. Um, uh, you know, multiple ideas about whether you should do something. You want people to not just um, immediately subscribe to groupthink or modify things too much. But then once the decision's been made, you don't want people to keep wanting to hold on to their point in the argument and not keep moving. So it's a really great thing for keeping um, moving fast. Definitely. And, and when you have new data, make a, make a different decision if, if that's what it's showing you. And, and also for us as co-founders and, and even co-CEOs, we don't want people to say, oh, Phil said this, I'm going to go and do it. I'd love someone to challenge me and say, is that the right way of doing things? Or how, how can we do this in a better and a more efficient way? I've just thrown out my initial idea. Don't take it as gospel. Yeah, t- tell me about that co-CEO thing as well, because that's reasonably um, unique, isn't it? Reasonably rare. Yeah, it is. I think you're seeing in a few other um, startup companies coming out of the US that it's becoming um, a little bit more common, but... Uh, we, it came up at the beginning of this year. We we're looking at how we grow the company and the org structure and things like that. And um, part of it was looking at uh, Tom and I's role. And, and we're, we're chatting about it. And Tom says to me, like, we we go across the whole company. We do all this this stuff. Um, it actually makes sense rather than having these different titles. And every now and again, they'll change because we're working on something differently. Why don't we be co CEOs? And so we tested that on the board and on the, the team. And everyone just said, naturally, that's how I've always seen you guys anyway, so um, makes sense to us. And from then it was just about how do we how do we share that? And like you said, it's a little bit unique. So how do when people join the, the company, how do they understand how that works? And so, you know, we did things like um, we we co-wrote a blog together. Um, we did a presentation to the team around why we're doing it and what it means and and how do you operate within that. Um, we, we naturally go for... Um, I suppose we've got different strengths and weaknesses, and um, it turns out that uh, a lot of my weaknesses are Tom's strengths and, and vice versa. So actually together we're way stronger. Um, and and the other thing we did um, as part of that, we, we started talking. Um, we actually didn't know each other before we started Aura, and um, you know Tom mentioned, he goes, well, it took me about two or three years to really understand how you work. And um, some things that you, you, you do really frustrated me, and, and probably the same for you, and It'd be great if you know we could have started at the beginning how we are now, and um, so that got us thinking. And, and we we did a little bit of research and found that well, we can actually write. Um, we call them me manuals, but there's you know, guides and everything else um, that a few other companies around the world were doing of of how do you share who you are as a person with the rest of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we both wrote um, our own me manuals, um, which talks about you know who we are as a person, uh, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, uh, how to interact and operate with us. Um, and that naturally evolved into uh, about 80% of the company now have written their own me manual. So you walk into a company day one, you can read people's thing, uh, me manuals and go, well, I, I know how to operate with Simon from, from the get-go rather than taking two years to figure out yeah, yeah. what he likes and doesn't like and how do I not tread on his toes. That, that's so interesting. Um, at a company I was with, um, we did the whole um, Myers-Briggs kind of carry on mm. and Although a lot of it, um, I don't know, I was 100% on board with, uh, very valuable was the parts about how people like to be worked with. And just little things like knowing whether, um, like me, 
you think by talking, which can be infuriating to people who like to have everything pre-worked out before a meeting. Uh, and, and yeah, to actually kind of be able to be cognizant of people's different um, uh, approaches and, and, and then try to modify yourself is, is really useful. Yeah, and, and so I'm what they term a gradual processor, uh, which means I like to take in all the information, have a think about it, come up with what I think is the right way forward and then talking about it. Uh, which often results in someone saying something to me and me having a blank look on my face. and So they, they can't quite work out if I've heard them, what I'm thinking, what's going on in my head. Uh, so writing that down and letting people know that, and you know, and Tom is the opposite. He, he's a fast processor, so he will say what's on his mind, say it out loud, um, having very quickly processed it all. And so at times, you know, early on um, at Aura, we used to bang our heads against opposite walls because... He'd say something out really loud and really quickly, and I'd sort of just sit there thinking about it. He's like, "I want an answer right now," you know. And so, but now, now we know how we operate. So, uh, you know, and we can compensate for that. So, if he wants an answer now, I can say uh, something like, "Oh, look, well, I'm just going to shoot from the hip," um, which is my flag to him to say, "I haven't fully formed an opinion yet, but I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm thinking right now." Uh, and then uh, he knows that, and the day's time, I might come back and say, "I thought about it a little bit more." Here's what's going to change, or here's here's I think that it is the right way of going forward. So um, there's those little things that, like you said, you know, just people think differently and people act and operate differently. So why don't we share that mm. to make it easy? Yeah, and, and I quite often, if I know that I'm just kind of thinking by talking, and I don't know the people that I'm working with, I'll say, look, I just, you know, <laughs> this might drive you a bit nuts, but I'm just going to go for a minute. And uh, yeah, you kind of apologize. First, <laughs> um, hey, and so you know when you when you kind of like um, had you, your co-founder was a management accountant, wasn't he? A management consultant, and then you were a, a lawyer, and you both went to kind of chuck in your good jobs, hard won, you know, studied for and worked worked hard for. Did people think you were um, you you were on a good thing, or did they think it was a brave or foolhardy move? And and how does it feel now? I think people thought a combination of those things, and um, I know we always talk about positive motivators and negative motivators and and one of the negative motivators is those people that say don't worry you've still got your job to come back to or that doesn't sound like it's going to work um, or they just don't quite get it uh, and that creates a little chip on your shoulder which actually can help you and, and uh, you know the same thing with some of those early police that said to us this will never work and you know for us we go right well we're going to come back in a year's time we're going to show you that it's working uh, and and that's we, we got a lot of that early on as, as people uh Part of they didn't understand the, the problem itself, um, and the more that we got into it, the more that we really saw the impact it could have. Um, and then, yeah, but people didn't know or understand why you'd want to leave a, a safe job and, and a, I suppose, a career. And but for I mean, for me, um, I was at the point where uh, I'd been there for about four years already. It was going to be another five or six years of doing exactly the same thing day in day out to go up that next step of the ladder. Um, and so it was sort of the right time in, in a way to step out and try something different. And then those positive motivators around, well, how can you, um, you know, I always wanted to be involved and, and run my own business um, to be able to make the, those decisions and, like I said, you know, build that culture out. Um, and also how do you have that impact on the world? How, how do you, I suppose, try and leave um, the world up in a better place? And so those are the, those two different types of motivators, but together they work really well. What advice do you have for people who might have a um, a hard-fought, comfortable 
uh, life, but have a, a dream to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think if, if you do have an idea and you're passionate about it, um, start testing it out. You don't need to quit your job. We did a lot of nights and weekends for over a year um, before we were at the point where we knew that we had to jump in. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do without um, without just jumping off uh, the deep end. But uh, I suppose the advice would be a couple of the, the cliches, but everything takes way longer than you think, um, like three times as long um, at least. And then, and then the other thing I think is don't – or take everything that other people say with a grain of salt, especially if you um, become the expert and, and know what you're trying to solve. Um, you'll hear a lot of um, people who, who might put you down and not understand what you're doing. Um, there's a lot of advice that you can read and read way too much into it. So, I mean, two classic examples is the whole, um, you know, triple, triple, double, double, double for revenue. If you want to be a $100 million company, um, you've got to do that um, from $1 million onwards to get there uh, over five years. And uh, when you start looking into it, I think it's 0.1% of startup companies actually achieve that. Uh, I think the two most recent ones that did spent about $1.4 billion on sales and marketing alone. So uh, there's there's those things that you read about and go, oh, cool, I'm just going to do that. And you build you know, you know build a, a hockey stick and go, this is going to be easy. Uh, but reality is that you need to that you need to get the balance right between um, growth and burn and profitability. Yeah, um, and reality and a plan. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I mean, there's uh, there's so much there's so much out there these days around uh, advice, and and a lot of it again comes from, from the US, which and a lot of it's really good because they've got a lot of experience. Uh, but there's even things that you read about um, these companies in the US that have uh, uh, annual leave or, or holidays, take it whenever you want as the company policy. And you start thinking, well, how do we implement that here? But you need to understand the wider context of in the US. Um, employers might only get one or two weeks standard a year. We've, we've already thought about that as a country, you know, and we've gone, everyone gets four weeks um, plus public holidays and everything else. So, Which uh, by the end of it is about six weeks of the year. Exactly. But when you start when you start thinking about, oh, we could just give everyone free holidays and do this and that and that, but not understanding that in the US, even when they do have this you can take, take leave whenever you want, they only still only take one or two weeks. You can take your four days whenever you want. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so take everything with a grain of salt is probably, probably my advice. And also uh, surround yourself with um, people who have um, who have gone through the journey as well, um, both ways. So how do you how do you provide um, knowledge to people that are coming up? And also how do you get uh, those people that have already done it or are, are that one or two steps ahead of you to get the understandings? Because there's so many mistakes that you'll make. And I can see now why second-time founders and you know, do so much better because oh, we do so much differently if we could do it all again. Um, but how can you learn that from other people and try and try and mitigate doing those things yourself? And one last thing that we like to ask people, you know, with with um, what from the outside looks like some fantastic success, you know, amazing investors, huge clients, uh, international expansion and stuff. Like, how do you define success? Does it feel like you're along the way, or what's your version of success? I think there's short-term and long-term success and I suppose everything in between and you've got to have a little bit of both. I think at the moment for us, um, we've got a long-term plan but you break that down into into quarters and even weeks and so we, as a company, we have uh, wins of the week. So every Friday afternoon we get together as a company and share uh, demos of the product, um, stories from our customers, how we're, we're helping and those small things I think are really important to celebrate um, and it's very easy 
when you're on this long journey to to forget about or ignore those things. And so, um, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, we actually helped with a kidnapping case. Um, so that's one of the things you can share and people go, wow, we're actually making a difference what we do. Uh, long-term success is is obviously when, you know, the company is, is, is deemed successful and in, in, in the future and exit, I think. For me personally, one of my mottos is make others successful um, and then naturally that will make you successful. So uh, as leaders, it's how do you ensure that everyone else around you can be the most successful person? Um, and I always say that we, it's almost an inverse pyramid being a, um, being a co-CEO. So we're at the very bottom trying to make everyone else um, successful at their jobs and therefore the company becomes successful that way. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That's Phil Thompson, the co-CEO at Aura. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was fantastic. And thank you very much, Tina Tiller, for producing. And thank you very much for having us along with the podcast. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spinoff and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.